the U.S. Uh, is, is exchanging tactics and methods with many countries around the world. I don't think there's any other example of such close connections between two countries like the U.S. and Israel. They had absolutely no reason to search me since they were not going to let me enter. So it was for pure humiliation. The Electronic Intifada. The Electronic Intifada. The Electronic Intifada. This is the Electronic Intifada podcast. I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman, and you're listening to the Electronic Intifada podcast. We're back from a short summer hiatus, and we're just going to jump right in. Today, we'll be talking about U.S. and Israeli exchange programs to share practices of police militarization, mass surveillance, violent repression of communities and movements that both governments define as a threat, and racial profiling, and how this partnership encourages ongoing violations of human and civil rights. Then we'll hear from a Chicago-based Palestinian-American who has quite a story to tell about what happened when she tried to enter Ben-Gurion Airport and visit her family. She was able to actually record part of her interrogation by Israeli border officers, and we'll play that recording for you. But first, Jewish Voice for Peace and researching the American-Israeli Alliance have just published a report called Deadly Exchange, The Dangerous Consequences of American Law Enforcement Trainings in Israel. It draws on research that Jewish Voice for Peace has been doing as part of its Deadly Exchange campaign to end collaborations between American and Israeli state forces and to highlight the harm those collaborations do to people fighting for their rights in Palestine and across the U.S. The report is the result of dozens of Freedom of Information Act requests, exclusive interviews with American and Israeli personnel, and exhaustive academic and media research in English, Arabic, and Hebrew. Accompanying the report, researching the American-Israeli Alliance released the Palestine is Here database, which is a website mapping Israeli training of police forces from cities and towns across the U.S. Joining us to talk about these police exchanges and the report is Iran Efrati, executive director of researching the American-Israeli Alliance and a board member of Jewish Voice for Peace. Iran, thank you so much for being with us on the Electronic Intifada podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So let's talk about the report. What does the research tell us in terms of the depth of collaboration between U.S. and Israeli forces? Well, um, it tells us, first of all, that Palestine is not a foreign policy issue anymore in the United States today. Um, And that what we see in Palestine affects how police in the U.S. understand their role and carry out their work here back home. when Raya authored the report, we went back to 2002. And since 2002, just months after 9-11, hundreds of hundreds of high-ranking of officials from law enforcement here in the U.S. have been sent to training delegations in Israel, and thousands have been trained by Israeli security experts in the U.S. But it's not only police, uh, FBI, CIA, ICE, have also trained in Israel, but also employees of the MTA in New York and campus security from universities across the country, all of which went through the same training under the banner of counterterrorism. Uh, now, of course, it, it's important for us in the report to, to notice that U.S. policing has colonial roots that both affect and draw on American operations across the world long before these exchanges began from the Philippines and Vietnam and, and from slavery through the Jim Crow area and the Corn Mass Incarceration area 
You know, so U.S. policing as an arm of, of the state has always been oppressive. There's always been violent and racist. But with that said, in the current war on terror era, uh, the refinement of tactics of suppression that happens through training with Israel is very important, and, and it cannot be undermined. What we try to argue in the report is that this training normalized and in some cases shape oppressive policing tactics that are based on what Israel does to an occupied population and then coming back home here uh, to deal with civilians in the U.S. And the, these trainings go against, like you said, everything that civil rights and other activists and social movements have been working for in this country for decades. Iran, you mentioned um, a little bit of the history of this collaboration, especially uh, since September 11th, uh, 17 years ago. Mm-hmm. And but but who are some of the organizations that sponsor these projects? I know that the Anti-Defamation League um, has been a main supporter of these exchanges. Can you talk about um, these organizations and and their motives here? Absolutely, I think it's you know, it's a very interesting question because we see it as a as a state. Um, federal delegations that are being backed by the state, by the government, on all the branches of it. But de facto on the ground, they're being sponsored by small organizations, or not so small, but or private organizations, NGOs, like the Anti-Defamation League, which is supposed to be a civil rights organization, like APAC <clears throat> or Gili from Georgia, just private organizations that are invested uh, enormous amounts of money in sending thousands of police officers throughout two decades already into Israel and to train. Now, when we look at the reason and the reasoning behind that, we can find a lot of answers. We can talk about uh, the ADL or APAC need and want uh, to have a clear connection between Israel and the U.S and to strengthen the idea that Israel is the biggest ally of the U.S., so Zionist uh, motives that are pushing the police to train there. But when you ask them directly, they say that they care about security and that there is a joint enemy that we need to face. Now, this discourse is a discourse of foreign policy. It's a discourse of a government that local NGOs take and spend a lot of money in sending. Now, the question that we are still asking ourselves is, where is the real money coming from? How is the money being transferred through uh, those NGOs and those organizations into these delegations, into Israel, and whose really interest is it the delegation will be there? Iran, what are some of the common ways both the U.S. and Israel use state violence to crush protests, especially as we look at the way that the U.S. has militarized its forces and deployed them against Black, Live Ma- Black Lives Matter protests in recent years? Mm-hmm. But of course, as you mentioned, as, as routine treatment by police of black and brown people. Well, you know, that, that's, again, a very interesting question. I think that in many ways, Israel has modeled many of its state violence tactics on the American model. In, in the post-colonial era in the last uh, around 70 years. And the U.S. has modeled the language and policing tactics in the post-9-11 era, for sure, on the self-proclaimed successful and proven Israel model. Both the U.S. and Israel are considered democracies by, by the West, but they've always deployed anti-democratic and violent tactics to crush social movements that, that have challenged the regime. 
um, it begins with mass surveillance on a, on a giant scale, like we, we can learn from the NSA and obviously from the Israeli regime. It ends with first resort of violent crushing of protests. Israel uses brutal and often lethal force against Palestinian protests. We have seen this for years across the West Bank. We, of course, see it now on the Gaza border. In the U.S., cops shoot and kill black and brown people with impunity for decades now. And we see more recently the use uh, of force as the forces also in protest in, in Ferguson, in Baltimore, and other places. So you really see that the history between the countries, the long history of collaboration around security that goes back decades, uh, but with specifically the 9-11 happening after the second intifada started, that both Israeli and American officials said that are fighting the same Muslim enemy, the same terrorists, and then also the same security threats from within, the same idea of security threats for policemen or for terror from within. Um, Israel was described as, as you know, after 9-11 as an expert that is filling a needed gap of how to create, you know, so-called security. Um, and many in the U.S. government were very openly interested in the Israeli model. The U.S. was also interested in how Israel managed to use so much force and anti-democratic measures against Palestinians and really control a whole population with no rights, but still remain de facto in the status of legitimacy and, and democracy. So when we're going back to how they're deploying the force, and I think that one of the things that maybe is not talked enough is that Yes, they're using lethal force um, on civilians or on people under their control, both Israel and the United States. But the question is how, at the end of the day, we can still call them democracy. What are they really sharing that they are not already both considered to be some kind of violent dictatorship like other countries around the world? Iran, you mentioned control of populations. Um, can you talk about the ways that detention is used and the policies mm. around detention uh, that, that are being exchanged by the U.S. and Israel um, and, and the connections that you see between the tearing apart of families at the U.S.-Mexico border and the ways that Israel has used the same tactics against Palestinian families? All right, all right. Well, I think, you know, both the U.S. and Israel have long history uh, from their establishments, really, of, of detaining population and separating families. Israel, of course, systematically incarcerate Palestinians as a way to break down resistance to the occupation, um, including, of course, incarcerating children on a regular basis, on a daily basis. Um, if you're going to East Jerusalem, I just came back from two months back home uh, in Palestine, and I do a lot of work around East Jerusalem. I, I have a lot of friends there and work. I mean, the, the image of a child being detained, and when we're saying a child, just to be clear, we're talking about five years old, six years old, 10, 11, not only 18 or 19, what will be considered still a child here in the U.S., um, but this image is a, is a daily routine image. Um, and Israel is separating families as a means of breaking this resistance to the occupation or just the fabric of a community that is living under them on a, on a systematic level. Now, the U.S. obviously have a long history of separating families as well. Today, the U.S. is, is a global leader in incarceration and destroying families and the social fabric of entire communities. But the idea of policing borders, specifically the way that Israel does it today, 
is based on a, on a discourse of security and based explicitly on race. So when ICE and other law enforcement agents are brought to witness a live demonstration, really, of the Israeli model, they are seeing a country that has an apartheid system of laws and, and policing that is based on the separation of families and mass incarceration of entire communities. So when these ideas from the Israeli model are taken to their logical conclusion in the U.S., the result is policies like the Muslim ban or child separate, separating from their parents at the border. I mean, we're not claiming in the report that because of these exchanges, this has happened. Again, the U.S. have a long history of abuse of human rights, civil rights, and separation of families. But you cannot ignore the idea when training with a military force that is busy daily with separating families and arresting children, that it will not normalize and shape the way that police or ICE is working here back in the U.S. That's the voice of Iran Ifrati. Uh, we're talking about a brand new report that was just released called Deadly Exchange, The Dangerous Consequences of American Law Enforcement Trainings in Israel. Iran, a major part of the research is, is not only how these forces are training each other, but how corporations are also cashing in. Can you um, talk about why you included uh, corporate profiteering research in this report and why it's important to bring that out into the equation? Well, uh, in in many ways, we didn't only include corporate profiting. I think that we, we highlighted as the pushing force behind those exchanges, really. Um, at TRIA, we believe that the real exchange that is being exposed now is the American-Israeli military industry that under the banner of security collaboration to, to identify and combat a joint enemy, actually um, fund, develop, test, and sell tactics, technologies, and weapons around the world. Uh, Israel is a unique, again, in, in the way they are the only accepted democracy. Uh, I would say that hopefully increasingly uh, um, is disappearing, um, that holds what is referred to often as a laboratory in their backyard. The, the West Bank is Jerusalem, of course, Gaza, uh, a lab where Israel refined, test out their weapons, but also methods of control, physically, psychologically, those tactics, technologies, and weapons tried on Palestinians, and then they're being sold around the world as battle-proven. The, the Israeli security industry has developed what, with a huge, huge support of the U.S. military aid. For years, uh, the U.S. is sending military aid uh, to Israel. In the past decade or so, the number was around Three billion, or more than three billion dollars a year, uh, more than 26 percent of that from the U.S. military aid in the last 10 years uh, was invested in Israel's own military industry. The, the, Israel was the only country in the world that had this agreement with the U.S. Um, that you know more than 26 percent can be used on our on Israel's uh, industry, but the military industries that Israel uh, developed actually became pretty powerful in the last decade and a half or so. Powerful enough to start actually being, uh, to, to show a, a competition and threat the U.S. military industry. Uh, the, Obama industry the Obama, I'm sorry, administration in 2006 signed a new military aid agreement that will take effect in now in 2019 that actually changed the term of the agreement. So while Obama promised Israel 3.8 
billion dollars a year, and most of the people, uh, supporters and critics, talked about the huge increase of money and how the U.S. is backing Israel fully. Um, the more important issue seems to be a, a lost in the fine print of the agreement, and we didn't heard about that enough. And is that that Israel, from the thirty-eight billion dollars that it's going to receive in the next decade, have to spend a hundred percent of the aid in buying U.S. weapons and technology made by American military industry. No more support to the Israeli industry, only by proxy of collaboration between the companies, but 100% is going back to the American industry. And what this means is that U.S. military aid to Israel is mostly a way to increase profits to U.S. military corporation after their products are tested and refined on Palestinians. And that is a realization we hope that activists for justice in Palestine, but also activists for racial and economic justice in the country uh, will address. In many ways, the problem starts here and ends here in the U.S. And like we said, Palestine is very much a domestic issue today in America, not a, not a foreign policy one. There's also a large section in the report on Israeli surveillance technology and as well and how, uh, you know, U.S. forces, police and and other law, so-called law enforcement forces are using this kind of surveillance mm-hmm. on activists um, and, and social justice movements. Can you talk a little bit about right. uh, this kind of technology and, and, and the sharing of practices between the U.S. and Israel? Sure. Sure. So in Israel, the surveillance of, of all Palestinians uh, is very comprehensive. I'm, I'm saying it now as a researcher, but also, unfortunately, as an ex-combat soldier uh, that was a part of the system. Um, the idea of surveillance in Palestine is to make every Palestinian feel like they're always being watched by Israel and to intimidate sorry, um, the sheer idea of resisting the occupation in any way. Um, in our research, we found that for many U.S. law enforcement delegates, the extent of Israel's surveillance was a very impressive and appealing, and that they wanted to try and implement that. So you can see, for example, in Atlanta, that they built a video interrogation center modeled after uh, the one in the old city of Jerusalem. They monitors information from security cameras across the city. In Baltimore, they, they just contracted an Israeli company called Nice System for cameras in their city watch program. We use a few examples in the report to show how, although the U.S. used some tactics before and on social movements, there's actually uh, companies and technology that is being acquired at this moment and being deployed in cities across the United States, of course, without the knowledge of, of most citizens. There's even a, a branch of uh, the New York Police Department in Tel Aviv and, and, and right. also a branch of the Israeli police in New York. Is that, is that right? Can you talk, talk a little bit about that, too? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, since 2007, there's an there's a NYPD official uh, station next to Tel Aviv in Kor Saba in the center of Israel. And again, it's not only just a center for collaboration, there is an official uh, NYPD officer that is sitting in Israel and and representing uh, NYPD. There's, of course, large portion of, of military uh, uh, people and police officials 
in New York City, but across the country that are sitting and facilitating these exchanges. In the U.S. Uh, is, is exchanging uh, tactics and messages with many countries around the world. I don't think there's any other example of such close connections between two countries like the U.S. and Israel. Now, it's important to highlight all the countries that the U.S. is collaborating and training with, and it's important to talk about what the repercussions of what they're learning from different countries and what they're bringing and importing from and to those countries. But Israel is a very specific place because Israel is the only country today that is holding a very official and declared apartheid uh, state on millions of Palestinians with no rights at all under the Israeli occupation. And those are the people, this regime, this apartheid regime is the people and tactics and, and ideas that the police is actually collaborating with. So sitting in Tel Aviv, in Israel, is maybe uh, seem completely clean, but it's actually learning the same tactics of a police force sitting in Hebron or on the Gaza border or all across the West Bank and East Jerusalem. Racial profiling, of course, is used uh, by Israel quite openly uh, at you right. know, border crossings, at checkpoints, um, at Ben Gurion Airport. And the U.S. State Department even acknowledges that Israel uses racial profiling and that people who are Arab and or Muslim will have a difficult time getting across border patrol. Can you talk about how Israel's use of racial profiling has influenced U.S. policies and the two-way system that they influence each other? Specifically, uh, the report writes about the broken windows policy. What is that and why is it important? Yeah, absolutely. So do you know how do we call racial profiling in, in Hebrew? How, do, how? We don't. We call it racial profiling in English. Because wow. it's worth mentioning first that Israel as a country was established and exists as a racial profiling project. So much so that, you know, right. we don't actually have a word for it. It's not something that we need to describe. This is the reality in Israel and Palestine. Everybody is being profiled. We're, of course, talking about targeting Palestinians. But then we'll have to talk also about um, Arab Jews, Mizrahi Jews, Ethiopians, Russian Jews, and refugees from uh, African countries where Israel is selling and, and training regimes in, uh, in mass killings, uh, Eritrea, South Sudan. Now, law enforcement, American law enforcement delegations often arrive at Ben-Gurion, like you said, um, to learn the intensive training in the, the Israeli model that is referred to by them as the golden standard of airport security. And they bring some of these tactics and technologies back home. But the core of Israel's airport security is systematic racial profiling. And nobody is ashamed of that. I mean, nobody is even trying to hide it. The Shin Bet, the secret agent, is sitting in the entrance uh, of Ben Gurion Airport right when you go in from the car. And from the moment you go in, you're being monitored completely. Now, of course, this is not where it starts. Because Israel is a racial profile-driven country, you're always being surveilled. So you are actually being surveilled already on the road or on the way out from your city, your village, through a checkpoint or not, on your way to the airport. This is the real security, so-called, system in Israel. So, So it's the official policy of profiling airports and is directly derived from 
it's apartheid legal and policing system that separates Palestinians from Israelis before they even get into the airport. Uh, it begins at a checkpoint miles before the airport. It continues through selective questioning and tracking by undercover agents. It includes searches and interrogations of Palestinians and Arabs and Muslims. Now, the former director of security at Ben Gurion Airport and the Israeli Airport Authority opened a private security company uh, shortly after 9-11 and started exporting Ben Gurion tactics um, abroad, first to Logan Airport in Boston, then all over the U.S. Uh, in the report, we mentioned that the Logan Airport officials are quoted as proud to be the first U.S. airport to use the Israeli tactics. And it, it wow. has period things to other airports across the country. You know, the former head of the TSA said they based some of their work on Israel to really see the effects of this delegation. Now, in the case of broken windows, I think this is an American policy uh, philosophy that has spread all over the world. And you know, already in the 90s, Israeli police were trying to implement it. Uh, one example where Israel tried to adopt an American method it with uh, the stop and frisk law. So we actually called it Tap and Frisco again. In the Knesset, it was passed in 2015. It was officially uh, stated for three years, and it enabled the police and army to search anyone without probable cause if they could justify uh, sorry, under security. Now, obviously, Israel has always used racial profiling and target Palestinians, but here they try to learn from the American about writing it into the law in a very particular way and how to make this method officially and very efficient uh, by the law and in the so-called democracy, uh, democratic way, I guess. Uh, what exactly is the broken windows policy <clears throat> for people who aren't familiar with that, with that term? Sure. So uh, broken window is a theory, it's a, it's a crime theory established in the U.S., um, and it's basically... Is, is warning that, that certain signs of crime or antisocial behavior, you know, anarchy, disorder, um, create an environment in a neighborhood or in a city that encourages further crime and, and maybe endangers other, other people. So they're trying to show in many ways how you can see someone that have... Um, uh, a broken window, as it say, in his house or in his car, for example, and that can be a sign that you can find drugs there or weapons. Now, it was tried for years in the U.S. and other countries and time and time again was uh, um, contradicted by the reality, by activists, by academics. In Israel, what they were trying to say is that the shape of different neighborhoods the shape of different um, houses or cars on the roads or behavior in Palestinian neighborhoods can also show that there might be a terror, uh, quote-unquote, danger that will come from the same neighborhood. And many police officers that actually traveled to Israel and talked with officials in Israel came back to the U.S. and said, we learned in Israel that we have to check, you know, if there's a broken car on the road or if there's something weird about the attitude of anyone that we stop randomly on the street or on the highway, it can maybe be the sign that he is a potential terrorist. Now, that's infringement of, of civil rights 
is on a massive scale. That means that if you're driving your car on a highway and you didn't give the right answer or you looked weird to the officer, immediately you're being suspected of terrorism. Not only maybe having drugs in your car, not only what they already did until now, and of course is wrong, um, maybe have some kind of issue uh, with the law, but being a terrorist. And in Israel, the answer to terrorism is shoot first and ask questions later, of course. So when taking this concept or this idea and trying to take the broken windows, the American theory into Israel, again, it's, it's like many other things, is being refined in Israel to adapt that to terrorism, when it comes back to the U.S., can have deadly uh, results in the streets of America. Iran, let's talk about the website that Raya, uh, the researching American-Israeli alliance, has put together. Palestine is here Mm -hmm. is is the website. It's an extraordinary searchable database that allows people to track Israeli military ties to American local government, police departments, uh, corporations, and academic institutions. How does this database work, and how does it support grassroots organizing to end the kinds of collaborations between the U.S. and Israel that we've been talking about today? Yeah, we're we're so happy with Palestine is here. It's uh, out already for a week now. Palestine is here. That's how we call the database. is is basically the result of years of research, of FOIAs, of interviews, um, in a simple search engine that is free and open to use and very accessible. We created it for the movement for justice in Palestine, but also other movements for racial and economic justice in the U.S. Um, the idea is that this is a tool that local activists and communities can use to build campaigns around their local government, police departments, or universities, so that we can end ties to Israel at a local level across the country, but also track where local money and government interests are, are going when it's not on us. Now, because this ties normalize and enable injustice both in Palestine and here in the U.S., now, in a trial, we believe that the U.S. is playing a very important role in maintaining Israeli colonialism, and that the most important thing Americans can actually do about Palestine or for justice in Palestine is to work locally here, from your own city, your own town, in the U.S., for Americans who care about injustices of policing in this country, um, understanding these exchanges with Israeli military regimes, need to be understood in a global uh, understanding because local policing is tied to U.S. foreign policy and to U.S. military industries and corporate interests. The database is meant to serve both people who are totally new to this issue and want to get involved, um, as well as experienced activists, civil rights lawyers. um, The the, the database is already actually serving um, communities from Black Lives Matter uh, lawyers across the country that want to use and understanding specific offices or specific departments went to Israel in the last 17 years. We support campaigns. We also received requests specifically from communities and groups that want to increase the data they have or want new data about their area, their police department, university, and so on. The database is constantly growing. Uh, it's being updated every day. And with every new campaign we're taking on, we're going to expand the data on the database. We are soon expanding to private companies, academic ties, 
um, and we're always adding more policing. Again, every day, this uh, unbelievable amount of uh, information about specific officers, date, the kind of training they received, who sponsored this training throughout the last 17 years, uh, those ties to an apartheid regime in Israel have to be talked about and defied by communities here for justice in Palestine and the U.S., again, on a local level for maybe a global result. That website is palestineishere.org. And yeah, when I was... uh when I was doing, you know, some some preparation for this interview, I plugged in my own uh, zip code, and I found, you know, immediately three or four different entries popping up in my in my area, um, documenting yeah. the the local police departments and and my county sheriff's department, which had, uh, you know, all gone on these training exchange programs um, to to learn from Israeli military forces and police forces. It's uh, it's shocking, but not surprising, of course. Um, yeah, but it, it's scary, right? Yeah. I mean, it's- it's really, it's really scary. It's that you don't have to be uh, to believe in the system. You can defy police violence to understand that policing is an arm of the of the government and incarceration, the prison industry are all things that we need to defy. But understanding that they're also being refined by a military regime on the other side of the world kind of get it to a, a, a new different edge that I don't think we had before, maybe. Uh, you mentioned a little bit about grassroots resistance. When when we have that kind of information at our fingertips that palestineishere.org offers us, what do we do about it? And and how can we how can we assess this ongoing um, damage that's being done to both our communities here mm-hmm. and to Palestinians? Um, it's such an enormous issue, and these systems of state power mm-hmm. and state violence seem impenetrable. What can ordinary people do with this information? Well, it is. It is an enormous issue, and um, and we see it as, as such. And I think we're taking it with a lot of responsibility to support the movements here. Um, but I think that because it's actually such an enormous issue, exactly because of that, the change has to start locally from home. We're not taking, you know, the government or the army or the police as a concept. We are, of course, and, and there's many years of act. Uh, of activists doing this really incredible, important work. But we really do believe in Raya that change is going to start locally from home, from your local city council, police department, or even local campus. Um, Our database and JVP's Deadly Exchange campaign are both about working with activists to build wide coalitions between Palestine and U.S. movements against militarization of policing, working with communities and activists that are, are most affected by the tactics and technologies of, of suppression. You know, just a few months ago in Durham, North Carolina, um, I'm very proud to follow this group and to work with this group for the past two years. The Durham to Palestine Coalition did amazing work and managed to get a resolution passed by their city council um, that their police would never again be sent to train with Israel. This is something that a few years ago, I think that we would dream of and couldn't imagine it will happen, but it's happening. Communities are starting to mobilize and talking about this issue very seriously. And there could be a domino effect of more and more communities saying, we are taking this on in our communities. We're refusing to be exposed uh, to this technology, tactics, uh, and policing that is being refined on the other side of the world on Palestinians. 
and we are rejecting that from our city, our neighborhood. And to start from there, we can have a pretty amazing struggle together. Ron, how can people learn more about the report and the websites? Where can they go? Well, we have our uh, Researching the American-Israeli Alliance, uh, RAYA, website, but palestineishere.org is the site, it's the map, it's the database. People can search for the trainings of their local police departments. You can also download for free the research report. You can also find that on uh, palestineishere.org under uh, report of Raya. Um, Yeah, and we are, our email is there um, and we are very open and very welcoming every activist, lawyer, community that want to work with us, want to advise us, all want to give uh, new information and research that you couldn't find on the site that we can uh, collaborate on and take and use to share uh, with the rest of the movement. We appreciate the work that is being done until now by activists, and we hope that we can add to that for the joint struggle. We're going to link to both the report and palestineishere.org on the Electronic Intifada. Uh, Iran Efrati, you're the executive director of Researching the American-Israeli Alliance, Raya, and a board member of Jewish Voice for Peace. Thanks so much for being with us today on the Electronic Intifada podcast. Thank you so much for all your work you're doing for the time you gave me. Coming up next, you'll hear audio from an interrogation by Israeli border officers that Chicago resident Wala Atman was able to record when she was detained at Ben Gurion Airport. Afterwards, we'll speak with her about her ordeal. Stay tuned. doesn't valid for you in Israel because you're a Palestinian. But I'm an American first. Your American I nationality American doesn't valid for you in Israel. Okay, but I do have the right I don't, to come no, you the don't same have the right. way no. that I left. No, you don't have rights. A U.S. citizen... You don't have rights. This is my country, not America. But we respect you This is my country, not America. You want the, the right to enter? I'm sorry? Ma'am, okay, let's finish with the custom. Well, can I talk to your superior? I'm the superior. There has to be someone no, above you. I'm the superior. You, you don't want to sign? I didn't even look at it because so I'm trying there. to talk no. to you guys. But, you but we don't need to talk to you. Difficult. We don't want to I'm talk to you. I'm a citizen. Fill the form. If you will not fill the form, you will not get your bags. I want my bags. So I'm fill the form, please. We don't need to talk to you. Finish fill the form. You don't need to talk to me that way. I'm a U.S. citizen. No one, no one talks to you that way. But you, you can. Uh, why you care? Why you think that we are care that you're a U.S. citizen? You don't care about U.S. citizens. No. Really? Yes, really. We, we support you the most in the so? U.S. You don't care about. No, that? this is my country now. This is not the part of America. We are not the fifth, the, the I don't know another city of uh, United States. 
something like that. We are, this is Israel. Ah, you're supposed. Ah, your taxes coming to this airport. Yes. So don't pay taxes because no. we don't allow you to get inside. So don't pay taxes. No. So you please tell Mr. Trump that I need the raise. Maybe he will arrange me a raise if he's paying my salary. Is that supposed to be funny or yes? something? Yes. You oh. think that you're funny? No, I don't. So, be quiet. You should be quiet. You're not being nice. You what? Ma'am. I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman, and you're listening to the Electronic Intifada podcast. That is a little bit of audio that Chicago resident Wala Otman was able to secretly record during her interrogation by an Israeli officer at the Ben Gurion airport when she recently attempted to travel to Palestine. Wala, thank you so much for being with us on the Electronic Intifada podcast today to talk about um, that recording and, and what happened to you. Of course. Thank you for having me. So let's uh, let's talk about what that recording actually tells us. The officer says clearly, I will explain it for the 10th time. Your American citizenship isn't valid for you in Israel because you are a Palestinian. This is not shocking. This is tacit Israeli policy that entry into Ben Gurion Airport is absolutely fine for U.S. citizens who are white and Jewish, of course, with the caveat that you're mm-hmm. not a member of an organization that supports Palestinian rights, <laughs> of course. But if you're of Palestinian descent, he says, uh, you know, your citizenship isn't valid. It's significant that you were able to secretly record this. Um, For years and years, we've documented stories about people being interrogated and deported based on their perceived or actual ethnicity or religion. Even the U.S. State Department has a warning to travelers going to Tel Aviv that says that you might be subjected to racial profiling at the border. Wella, can you talk about who you are and where you were going and what happened to you when you tried to use your passport to enter Ben Gurion Airport near Tel Aviv? Sure. So I'll start uh, by when I first landed in Tel Aviv. I stopped at I stopped in Jordan, and then my flight to Tel Aviv was at around 11 p.m. Um, and I remember being in Jordan. Um, in the lounge and making sure I was drinking a lot of espresso because I knew it was going to be a long night. I was traveling alone, which was the first time traveling traveling alone anywhere. Um, my family and I, we used to visit Palestine every summer when I was a child. So to me, it was um, a very new experience to be going there as an adult. Um, but I do remember what my parents would go through whenever we would enter through Tel Aviv. Um, so I landed in Tel Aviv around midnight. And when I first went up to the window to give them my passport and to hopefully enter, um, the man at the window told me, uh, you know, have you ever been here? I said, yes. He said, when? And I said, 13 years ago, which is true. I have not been back to Palestine in 13 years, um, just due to schooling and life. And um, he asked me a very strange question. He said, why why are each of your bags almost 50 kilos, about 23 pounds? And I said, well, I have my clothes in there and my shoes and handbags. And he says, well, it's summertime. You don't need that many clothes. And I just thought that was very strange. Like, what is it any of your business what I'm packing? Um, And then he told me to go and wait in an area. And this was kind of like a waiting area. It was closed off, but it was still kind of opened. 
And then a different officer called me to a room and he asked me more questions about um, what I do for a living and about my family. And I was advised by my family um, not to make it seem like I have ties to family in Palestine because um, Israeli officers do not, they're not very fond of anyone that has uh, relationships with people in Palestine. And so I told them that I was there to explore Tel Aviv and eat some shawarma. You know, I just kept it very lighthearted. And I told them that I am there to visit Jerusalem. And I even had a hotel booked for that same day, for that morning, once I would hopefully leave Tel Aviv. And I had a a car rental and everything. Um, And he told me, okay, go wait in the room. So a lot of this, you know, the waiting is to provoke us you know, and to, um, you know, kind of get us riled up. So I knew it was, you know, a mental thing, and I had to be strong. And so they called me to the other side, which I knew, because I've heard from my family that that's not the good side. That's where they're kind of tougher on you. And um, when I went inside, this time they closed the door, and it was a different officer. And he says, uh, you're here. He's like, he said, where's your Palestinian passport? And I said, oh, here it is. And he said, oh, you didn't give it to him in the beginning, so you were hiding it? I said, no, how am I hiding it if I'm giving it to you right now? And he said, oh, okay, so you are a Palestinian. He said, it's illegal for you to be here. I said, why? I'm a U.S. citizen. And he said, you're here to visit your family in Ramallah. And I had to really try hard to keep a straight face because I, I was there to visit my family. And I said, no, no, I don't really keep in touch with anybody. I'm just here to explore Tel Aviv and I have a reservation in Jerusalem after that. And he said, okay, you want to lie? Go wait, go outside and wait some more. I'm like, okay. So as I was waiting, I was like, I have to figure out how to record these guys. And so I kind of started playing with my phone, and I tried to use the video camera. And every time I pressed the button and I put my phone in my pocket, when I would, you know, take it out again, I could see that the video had ended. So I said, okay, let me try now with the recorder, the voicemail app. And, um, you know, I pressed the button. I put it in my pocket for a little bit just to see if it worked. And when I took it out, I could see that it was still recording. I said, okay, let me try this. So I had my phone in my pocket with my finger on the button to record so that as soon as they called me, I could have, I could record them. Um, But I didn't do this yet. So he brought me back inside after having me wait. And um, he told me, who's this? And he pointed at his computer. And it was a black and white fuzzy picture, but I could tell that it was me. I was probably about five years old. And I said, that's me. And he said, oh, you are a Palestinian and you lived here. He said, no, I didn't. I came here with my family every summer, but I never lived here. He said, no, you're lying. You did live here. And, you know, he kept repeating himself and I kept repeating myself. And he said, okay, go outside again. So it was just back and forth. Um, 
and it was, you know, the middle of the night. And then a different officer called me. This time he didn't even call me to the room. He kind of, you know, summoned me, and, you know, other people were watching, um, which is already humiliating. And he was even dressed differently. He kind of looked like he was, you know, the main guy. And he looked down at me, and he said, your, your entry to Tel Aviv has been denied. And I said, why? He said, because you're a Palestinian. I said, no, I'm a U.S. citizen. He's like, you're a Palestinian, and you are not entering Tel Aviv. Hmm. And that's when, you know, I was like, okay, I, I need to get this recorded. They had me sit down again, and, and I was ready to go with my recording, and they brought me into the room so that I can sign off on customs for my luggage. And then um, the entire time that I was in the room, that's the recording that you that you heard. Um, and I kept repeating over and over again, I'm a U.S. citizen, I'm a U.S. citizen, because I wanted him to be very clear that he didn't care that I was a U.S. citizen. And he didn't, and he said it. Um, and I even asked him, you know, it, like in a separate question, I said, you don't care about U.S. citizens? He said, no. And I was, I was shocked. Um, and just, you know, the things that he said were very, you know, surprising that because I knew I was recording, it was just, you know, I, I thought people were going to be shocked by it. Um, and even when I listen to the recording again, I'm still shocked. Um, because the U.S. is the biggest supporter of Israel. Even towards the end, he, um, you know, I told him that my taxes pay for this airport, you know. And he said, okay, don't pay taxes, you know. And he was kind of trying to be funny and made a remark about telling uh, President Trump to give him a raise um, since America paid for his salary. And, um, you know, I told him, do you think that's funny or something? And he said, no, so be, you know, and he said, do you think you're funny? I said, no. And he told me to be quiet and told him, you should be quiet. You're not being nice. And that's when I had to turn off the recording because he took out his handcuffs and was threatening to arrest me for talking back because he was, they were trying to provoke me. And in the end, he got riled up um, because I knew I had to kind of, you know, maintain composure and you know not not let them see that I was being bothered so I was you know, very calm for the most part um, and so that was the end of the recording but that wasn't the end of the detainment right when you say that he wasn't being nice he he cannot believe that a Palestinian woman would dare talk to him like that mm -hmm. um, yeah yeah Tell us about how it felt during this process. What was going through your mind at, at, at those moments? You know, I was very upset inside, and I just kept, you know, telling myself, don't show them that you're upset. I mean, even as I was waiting, I would kind of, you know, just have a smirk on my face so that it could kind of seem like I was totally unbothered. I felt humiliated, and I felt like I was being mistreated, and... You know, I'm like, I feel like I need a witness. I need, you know, access to, you know, someone in America. And even at this time, um, my father was on the phone with the U.S. Embassy and telling him what was happening. And they told him that there wasn't really anything that they could do about it. 
Um, so I was very upset and, you know, felt like my blood was boiling on the inside. But I also knew that it wasn't over and that I wasn't going to give up. Um, but I knew that I kind of had to, you know, look cool, calm, and collected just until I got back or just got out of Tel Aviv somehow. Well, uh, uh, and this is in the recording, he says, you don't have rights, this is my country. For you, um, what did that phrase mean? And tell us a little bit about your family's roots. Um, I wanted to laugh in his face when he said that because it is definitely not his country. It is my country. It is my family's country. And um, so my mother's family is originally from Yaffa or Jaffa, and my great-grandfather used to own acres and acres of land in Yaffa and Tel Aviv because they are very close to each other. And um, he was actually a big producer of so many different crops, and Yaffa is known for their oranges. And he would outsource um, oranges and other produce to other countries from how much he was able to produce. And uh, my family says, and I'm not so sure, you know, how true this is, but they say that part of Ben-Gurion Airport is built on my great-grandfather's land. So while I was in that detention center, I was just kind of thinking how ironic it was, like, hmm, well, kind of like I'm in my grandpa's home, but not really. Um, So it was just very ironic for me, like, for him to say that it's his land when we might possibly be on my grandfather, my great-grandfather's land. So it was just ridiculous to hear him say that. How long were you in detention? I was detained for about eight hours. I was there from midnight until about 8.45. And and when you were released, what happened? Were you able to enter Palestine? Did they just say, okay, you can go in, or were you deported? Um, Well... After the recording, um, let me just tell you kind of what happened from the recording until I um, exited the airport. Um, so the recording was probably around maybe 3 or 4 a.m. I was there for about four hours. And then after the recording, and they had you know, determined that they were going to send me back to uh, Chicago, um, you know, I kind of decided like, okay, well, if they already made their decision, I'm kind of going to give them a hard time about it now. So I, before I had to go back to the waiting room, I said, okay, well, I need to go to the bathroom. And um, a female officer started walking with me. And I looked at her, I'm like, excuse me, what are you doing? She said, I need to take you to the bathroom. I said, why? She said, because you need to be watched. And I was like, excuse me, I need some privacy. And she said, well, I'm not going to go in the stall with you. And I just looked at her like, oh, well, I, I hope you, I hope you aren't. Like, who do you think you are? That's a violation. And she waited for me right outside of my stall. And um, when I got out and she was kind of walking ahead of me, I took my phone out and I was recording um, just a video camera. And I wasn't even hiding it at this point. I was kind of making a joke, you know, because I wanted to send my friends like, oh, look at my bathroom babysitter. And um, that other officer who was in the recording saw me 
and he literally snatched my phone out of my hands and he got in my face. This guy is like at least six, three, you know, he's big guy. I'm like five foot zero and you know, I'm pretty petite. And he got in my face and he said, who told you to record an immigration officer? Who told you to record her? And I didn't even understand his question. And I told him that. I said, I don't understand your question. He said, who told you this is illegal? And I said, well, I want to show everybody my bathroom babysitter because this is ridiculous. And he said, you're not getting your phone back until you're in Chicago. I said, give me my phone back. And he said, no. And then when I reached to grab my phone from his hands, he reached for his handcuffs again. And he said, put your hand down or I am arresting you right now. So I'm like, okay. So I went and I waited back in that room. And he comes back to me holding my phone. And he has it opened. And he points to a picture. And it was a picture of me at a Palestinian protest in Chicago, fully decked out in uh, Palestinian gear, um, a company called Pal- Pali Roots that makes Palestinian clothing. And I mean, I, I was wearing a shirt that was a Palestinian flag. I was wearing the kufiyah. I was wearing a Palestinian cap. And I was holding a sign um, saying, one Holocaust doesn't justify another. And he said, is this you? And there was, you know, there's no denying it. I looked at it and I said, mm-hmm, yeah. And he swiped to the next picture and it was a different protest, you know, different clothes, but same idea. And he said, and this, and this is you? I said, yeah. And he said, you are a Palestinian and I should arrest you. And he said, you are not going to see your phone until you get back to Chicago. And I thought, oh boy. And the reason that he was able to see those photos was when I was on the plane on my way to Tel Aviv, I started to delete pictures from my album that I thought might, you know, put me at risk for being deported. Um, But I think because it was, you know, I was just traveling for a long time, I deleted them, but I didn't permanently delete. So when he had my phone, he took it so that he could delete the video of the immigration officer that I took. He saw my pictures that I had deleted as well, and he lost it. Um, Again, you know, I seemed fine on the outside, but really I was really nervous um, because, you know, again, I was traveling alone. I couldn't just call my dad and, you know, tell him what was going on. And I even told him, you know, I need to call my family. I need to call the embassy. They said, no, we're not letting you call anybody. And I meant using their phones. And then he comes back after a long while and he says, if you, if I see you using your phone for anything other than a phone call, I'm arresting you. I said, okay. He said, so you better behave yourself. I said, I am behaving. I think you should behave yourself. And he's like, what? Again, you know, he just couldn't, you know, he couldn't stand that I was kind of talking to him that way. And so... Um, I, I was in the room and after a while, you know, just making me wait because there's nothing I could do. My flight was still in a few hours. Um, a different officer came and told me to follow her. And I just 
automatically got a bad feeling because at this point, what more do they want from me if they're not going to let me enter? So I follow her and I was, you know, just carrying my phone and she told me I couldn't have it out and that it had to be in my backpack. So I put it in my backpack and we walked to what seemed like the opposite side of the airport. Um, because I saw we, we were kind of in the area where baggage claim was, which I thought was weird. Why are they taking me here? And she, we got to this place, and I couldn't even tell it was a door until she started knocking on it. I mean, there was no handle or anything. Um, but she kept knocking and knocking until a different officer opened the door for her. And I thought, you know, I looked inside, and it looked just really shady. I mean, it was dark it was cold in there and I'm like what what is this place and it's closed off from the rest of the airport like this is not good so I just had my um my carry-on with me and my backpack and they started to search every single item meticulously I mean I had you know a can of almonds and he opened up the can put the little metal detector thing inside, you know, and it was every single item that I had in there, um, everything. And, you know, again, it's just to kind of provoke us and, you know, get me upset and riled up, but I tried to stay calm. Um, That took a while. And then they told me to, uh, I was wearing a sweater. I was wearing a sweatshirt. And they told me to take my sweatshirt off because they could see I was wearing a shirt underneath. And, you know, they were checking my sweater and I kept complaining that I was cold. I said, I'm cold. I'm really cold. I want my sweater back. And they were, you know, they got annoyed and they just kind of threw the sweater at me. And um, I wasn't that cold, but, you know, I just wanted to annoy them. Um, So then a different officer came and told me to come inside the room. And it was, you know, even further closed off. And she proceeded to search me, search my body. And it was the longest search ever. It wasn't just the usual, you know, pat down. I mean, this probably took about 20 minutes. And to have your body searched for 20 minutes feels like a lifetime. Um, I mean, she literally pressed every single part of my body, my arms, my legs, um, my hair even. I mean, she was like, you know, going through my hair and like, what is going on? And then she, um, I was wearing sweatpants. She told me to, you know, kind of like put my legs apart as I was standing. And she, you know, pulled my pants uh, forward. She pulled them towards her. And she was about to put the metal detector in. And I put my hand there and said, excuse me, what are you doing? And she said, I have to search. I said, no, that is very violating. That's not okay. She said, well, that's my job. I said, this is a terrible job you have, and this is not okay. You already checked, you know, the area between my legs. And she said, well, I have to check even more. And that was very humiliating because she told me, you know, if I didn't let her that she was going to arrest me. And I couldn't risk that because then I would have no way to talk to my family and let them know where I was. And so the same with uh, my upper body. Um, I was 
wearing a sports bra, so there's no metal or anything, and yet she still told me that I needed to remove my bra. And I told her, no, I'm not going to expose myself. She said, you have to do this or you will be arrested. And so I had to take off my bra, and she, you know, searched and pressed, you know, around and underneath my breasts, and... um I'm sorry. Um, it's okay. It was very humiliating. It was very humiliating. Um, and there was no one to witness what was happening. Um, they had absolutely no reason to search me since they were not going to let me enter. So it was for pure humiliation. Um, and as down as I felt at that moment, I couldn't show them. And I also just thought about everyone else in Palestine who endures endures much, much worse than I did. You know? Um, yeah. So that was, that was the worst part. Did they so, put yeah. you back on a plane to Chicago? After a few hours, um, they told me that I'm going to Chicago and I said, well, who's paying for that ticket? Because my ticket was from, from Tel Aviv, from Tel Aviv, um, just to enter Tel Aviv. My ticket wasn't for that same day. And they told them, they told me that they were paying for it. And I kind of thought that that was weird. I said, hmm, that doesn't sound right. And, um, a different officer was, had to walk me all the way to the plane and, they told me you're going to Chicago. I said, no, I'm, I'm going to try to enter through Jordan. They said, it's not your choice. I said, no, it's not your choice that I am going to enter. And they said, well, as soon as you land in Jordan, your flight to Chicago is one hour later. So your bags are going to be transferred onto the next plane. So it's not your choice. And of course, I was panicking inside. I was like, oh my goodness, if I don't have my bags, if I don't have my stuff, you know, if I don't have my passport, that's, that's a problem because once we got on the plane, um, the Israeli officer had to give my passport to the pilot and it was in an enclosed, you know, a yellow envelope. Um, so I couldn't even hold my passport. They made me sit all the way in the back. Like I was, you know, some sort of criminal. Um, I wasn't around anyone else. And, um, the pilot asked me, you know, in Arabic, he said, Inti Palestinia, you know, are you Palestinian? I said, yes, but I'm a U.S. citizen. And he said, okay, don't worry, just stay calm. And so when I got off of the plane, um, the pilot still couldn't give me my passport. I was worried that the Israeli officer was riding the plane with us and was going to make sure that I got on the plane to Chicago. That was my biggest worry. And when I got off the plane and realized he wasn't there, I felt relieved. Um, and there was a Jordanian officer waiting for me, and he had my passport. And, you know, he looked at me and he said, you know, Walat, don't worry. We're going to take care of this. I said, no, you don't understand. My, my bags are going to be put on the plane to Chicago right now. He said, no, 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 I, we're going to take care of this. And it was about a four-hour ordeal um, in Jordan, you know, just, you know, kind of 
stopping my bag from getting put on the plane and then changing my ticket information. And, you know, um, it was, you know, it was quite a hassle, but um, I was able to change my flight and I spent the night in Jordan because the next day I was going to try to go through um, the Allen B Bridge. Um, and I had made arrangements with my relatives in Palestine to pick me up from there. And um, Allen B Bridge, although it is still managed by Israel, um, they are n- nothing like the officers in uh, Tel Aviv. Um, they still, you know, kind of ask me questions, but they are just very general. And I was granted a visa to enter Palestine. Wow. After all of that. What, yeah, it was what quite a relief. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was crying from how happy I was once I, you know, entered Palestine. And um, that was one of the best moments of my life. And as tired as I was, and as exhausted as I was, I don't think I've ever felt more alive at that moment. What was the first thing you did when you got to uh, your your family's house? Um, well, my uncle picked me up, and um, on our way back from the Allen B. Bridge, we stopped by this place in Ariha, and we got falafel sandwiches. <laughs> it was the best sandwich I've ever had in my life. Well, Altman, um, throughout all of this, it's kind of remarkable how tenacious you were and how determined you were not to let this interrogation and the harassment and, you know, the, the, the 20 minute pat down, all of that um, uh, interfere with your belief that you would get in. What do you hope this experience, your experience can tell others, especially um Palestinian people who, you know, hold whatever citizenship, um, who want to be able to just visit their family in Palestine? You know, I think that Palestinian people in general are very resilient. And I think that people kind of are sometimes worried to go back because of the harassment that they endure. But I think a big form of resistance is for us to continue visiting our homeland. You know, despite the trouble that they give us, we resist by continuing to visit. And I would encourage everyone who can visit, whether it's through Tel Aviv or through Jordan or through any way that they could enter to go and visit Palestine, um, because that's our homeland, our homeland, and it's our right to visit and it's our right to be there. Um, And... You know, through my recording, I wanted to expose Israel for the inhumane criminals that they are. And so um, I'm glad that people will get to see them for what they are and that um, I was able to tell them a very simple truth, that they are not nice. <laughs> so. Wow. Uh, Wala Otman, thank you so much for spending this time with us and um, and for being with us on the Electronic Intifada podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for this opportunity.
that's it for the Electronic Intifada podcast. Thanks to Sharif Zakut, our music maker and production assistant. For news, information, cultural features and reviews and pointed opinion and analysis, visit us online at electronicintifada.net, where you can also post comments and sign up for our daily email digest. Follow us on Twitter at Intifada. Radio stations are free to use this podcast. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, support the Electronic Intifada by rating it and leaving a review. On behalf of all of us at the Electronic Intifada, thank you for listening. 